God, we pray for the Word this morning as well as we turn to the book of Ephesians. God, uh, may your Holy Spirit teach us. Uh, may your Holy Spirit watch over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. We have uh, been working through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we are on Ephesians chapter 5. Last week, we began a little discussion on marriage, uh, uh, asking the question, who's the boss of the marriage? A question everybody always wants to know, right? Uh, we <laughs> looked at this text, this will be part two of uh, that discussion. Let me read the text that we are uh, going through. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Oh, that's what happened. I'm going this way. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing uh, with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you uh, also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So that's kind of the context of the, the whole text. And last week we, as you, if, you're, if you were here, remember we started with the most cute and cuddly verse out of this whole thing, that verse that we stick up above our, our bed, beds for at night. And that was the text, wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. And, and today we're going to add to the comfort and cuteness of this verse uh, by looking at the next verse, which says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And so both of those make for a nice, uh, calm uh, discussion on, on marriage. <laughs> now, if you look at this text and say, Well, you know, I've got this down. I know exactly what it means, and I'm right. Um, you probably have a little humility you need to work inside of you. Uh, verse 23, and... I should just, as a side note, this message, like last week's message, will be a little more theological. Next week, we're going to get super applicable to uh, everyday life, but uh, we need to work through this so we understand what it means. Uh, verse 23 is surely one of the most abused and debated texts in the New Testament. This is uh, Klein Snodgrass, who's a New Testament scholar. One of the most debated and most abused texts in the New Testament. And before we get into any of these kind of discussions, I know last week we looked at different views of this, this idea of submission. Uh, we've talked about this before here, but it's really important that we learn how to discuss theology when we talk theology. Because if you don't know how to discuss theology, things usually go bad. Uh, when it comes to theology, there are different concentric circles, if you will. Uh, Jesus at the central, at the center, he is the center of our faith. 
He is where we get our identity from, our value and worth, our love, forgiveness, grace. Then what we would have around that is, is what you might call as church dogma, which isn't a roughing dog. It's uh, basically uh, the fundamental doctrines of the church that all Christians agree on. Things like the authority of Scripture, Jesus necessary for salvation, uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Those would be dogmas. Then you have doctrines. Those are the things that would sort of uh, distinguish different denominations or different churches or different groups within Christianity. Things like some groups might be more Reformed or Calvinistic and talk a lot about sovereignty and predestination and other churches are more Wesleyan and Arminianism and talk more about uh, free will and those kinds of things. And if you don't know what those things are, that's okay. Uh, you can grow on those things. Then we have opinion. Those are things that the Bible's not really clear on. Though usually if it's your opinion, you think the Bible's really clear on it, but still it's just opinion. Those would be kind of things like, uh, I don't know, it might be like, like Halloween. Uh, do you go out and use Halloween as a time to meet your neighbors and bless your community and, and love people? Or do you hide out because you're scared someone's going to get you, right? Those would be different opinions in Christianity. Now, the point is, if your identity is not in Jesus, you will never be able to discuss theology well with people. A lot of times people, when you just start discussing their opinions or doctrines and you're different from what they, if your identity's not in Jesus, you'll get mad. Uh, you, because your identity is from being right. Your identity is found in your doctrine and opinion rather than in Jesus. And you'll write nasty emails and you say, well, I'm going to leave that church. I'm going to leave that group because I can't be around them because they differ than me. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. When you realize that you are fully loved and fully accepted and your faith is fully founded on Jesus, you're able to have a discussion with someone else who's got a different opinion or a different doctrine than you, or you're able to talk to even someone who doesn't even like the church and doesn't like Jesus and has different dogmas than you. You don't have to freak out because you know your identity is in Jesus. Whether they agree with you or not, you know you're loved and you can stay calm and you can actually have a really good theological discussion. I love having good theological discussions with people who disagree with me but who are mature in this. I really, really hate having good theological discussions or bad theological discussions with people who have their identity in being right rather than being in Jesus. And so a lot of times we talk about different views on things here, and hopefully this helps us understand the breadth of Christianity and helps us engage in good theological discussions. And because verses like this are really important, and it's funny how often some Christians just kind of conveniently ignore this verse. John 17, it says, I have given them, that that's us, the glory that you gave me. And, and there's a whole sermon right there. <laughs> that God gave us the glory he gave Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? That they, that's us, may be one as we are one, like the Trinity, I and them and you and me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so Jesus is saying that the unity in the church is to be assigned to the world that, that God is real. Yet a lot of times, because we're immature in our theological discussions, we spend more time fighting each other than being unified and loving each other. So uh, th this text is one of those texts that is in the realm of doctrinal differences or opinion. 
kind of between those two. And so we'll look at some of those, those differences. But this text also, as Klein Snodgrass says, is one of the most abused texts. And we talked about this last week, how there are some men who will take this text and use it as an excuse to abuse or to dominate or to control their wives. Sadly, books like this have been written uh, called Battle, Battered into Submission, the trage- Tragedy of Wife Abuse in the Christian Home. I mean, a book like that should never, ever have to be written, ever. Uh, but sadly, it is. Studies have shown that 18% of Christian wives report abuse of some sort by their husbands, and about 5% suffer physical abuse. This is Christian families. Uh, this is not kingdom. But sometimes people will take this verse and will use it as an excuse to abuse. Uh, Men in more conservative denominations with traditional views of marriage are more likely to abuse their wives. And the reason often is, is because when you go ultra-conservative or very fundamentalistic, the tendency is for you to put rules ahead of relationship, for you to put rules ahead of actually loving people. And there's a danger in this whole idea of this text where people who want control over others will use it and abuse it. But the reality is that always, always, always makes for a worse marriage. Uh, Dr. Gottman, who is one of the foremost marriage researchers in the States and in the world, uh, has this to say. Um, This is coming out of his research. Men who allow their wives to influence them, have happier marriages, and are less likely to divorce. It takes two, this way, (laughs) it takes two to make a marriage work, and it is just as important for wives to treat their husbands with honor and respect. But Dr. Gottman's research indicates that the majority of wives, even in unhappy marriages, already do this. This doesn't mean women don't get angry or even contemptuous of, of their husbands. It just means that they... Uh, let their husbands influence their decision-making by taking their opinions and feelings into account. Data suggests that men do not return the favor. Statistically speaking, Dr. Gottman's research shows that there is an 81% chance that a marriage will self-implode when a man is unwilling to share power. That's people who take this verse and say, well, I'm the boss, you submit, and I'm in control, and they dominate and control. That's one way to really quickly ruin a marriage. 81% chance it'll self-implode. Uh, it goes on, happiest, most stable marriages in the long run were those where the husband treated his wife with respect and did not resist power sharing. That's what we talked about last week, the idea of mutual submission to marriage. Did not resist power sharing and decision making with her. When the couple disagreed, these husbands actively searched for common ground rather than insisting on getting their way or insisting that they're the boss and you got to do it my way. We're moving. I don't care what you think. We're going kind of thing. Uh, The best marriages, according to research, are ones where there is this mutual submission, this mutual leadership, and that's what we uh, argued uh, last week. Now, again, with this text, really important to understand the historical background. Again, when we look at this text in, from our culture, we can see it kind of as, you know, oppressive. But when you looked at it from the position of women in this day, this text would have been incredibly liberating. Again, we talked about this last week. This is kind of review. 
In the Jewish world, uh, one of the daily rabbinical prayers was this. Thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. I mean, women didn't have a lot of rights in those days. Often lived in separate parts of the house, didn't eat with the family, uh, couldn't, uh, their testimonies weren't valid in court, that kind of thing. In the Greek-speaking world where the book of uh, Ephesians was written to, uh, it was even worse. Uh, one of the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, who shaped a lot of Greek culture said, as regards the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. And so this is the philosophy of the day. And then in steps Paul and he writes something that was so revolutionary, uh, if anybody would have been protesting, as we said last week, it would have been the men. And he says this, right before he talks about marriage, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. In a day where women had no rights, where the husband was ruler, and, uh, in this day, and he says, submit to one another. Yes, wives, submit to your husbands, but husbands also submit to your wives. Don't look that way. <laughs> We talked about this verse where it goes on. It says, wives submit. Now, remember, that word's not in the Greek. Nowhere in this passage does the phrase, wives submit to your husband, exist in the Greek. They put it in there to try to make more sense of the passage. But as we talked about last week, it can kind of confuse us because sometimes it puts the weight on the wife rather than the weight equally. Submit to one another the reverence for Christ. The way this passage is, is organized is submit to one another reverence for Christ now, here's how wives you submit, and here's how husbands you submit. So it says, wives to your husband, yeah, you submit to your husbands, but also submission for your husbands looks like this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As we talked about last week, the greater submission language is actually laid on the husband than the wife. In the Greek, it just says, wives, do this as unto the Lord. Husbands, you be willing to lay down your life as Christ and laid down his life for the church. That the model for the husband is not Jesus ruling over the universe, I get to rule over my family. The model is, in this passage, Jesus dying on a cross for his church. And so we argued, we looked at both positions, but I argued for a mutual submission last week because sometimes we're unfamiliar with that. All right, then this next verse, here's where we jump in today. Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. And again, sometimes people look at this and say, oh, case closed. Husband is the head of the wife. He's the boss. Case closed. Well, again, as Klein Snodgrass said, this is one of the most debated texts in the entire New Testament. It's not as clear as we think sometimes. I mean, sometimes we just kind of read because we read into our English and say, well, I know what head means. It's like the head of a company. It's the head of a CEO. Obviously, it means that the husband is the CEO of the family. Uh, but that word is a translation from the Greek word, uh, kephale. And there is confusion over exactly what this word means. Because as, as study people trace the word. And so we're going to look very briefly at four views of this text, okay? Four views. Again, this is in the realm of doctrine where we agree to disagree and have these good conversations. Four views of what this text means. A lot of it will depend partly on, again, as we talked about last week, what scriptures you highlight. Those who say husband leads, husband is the boss, wife submits, 
Again, we talked about scriptures in the Bible they highlight. If you say husband and wife mutually submit, there's other scriptures uh, that those people will highlight, like the rule to Adam and Eve in the garden to rule together, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, husband has authority over a wife's body, the wife has authority over the husband's body. They should not stop unless it's by mutual consent, this, this mutual submission language. So these positions depend on where you start from. Okay. Ready? Four, four views. <clears throat> uh, the first view is that kephale means authority over. So these people will translate this verse kind of like this. The husband is the authority over the wife. He is the CEO. He is boss. Head means in charge. Uh, they would translate this word boss, person in charge, leader, authority, over or superior in rank. And these people would say that the husband leads, the wife submits, and again, we talked about that if you hold that view here, uh, we're not going to force you to change. We're not going to argue against that as long as, as long as you are not a pagan head, as long as you're not a Gentile head, as long as you are a Christ-like kingdom leader. As it says in Matthew chapter 10, it says, uh, this is when the, the disciples were arguing over who gets positions near Jesus. And he says, to sit at my right and or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those from whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John because James and John were trying to get these positions of authority because that's what we do in this world. We want positions of authority. We want to be the boss, right? That's what we all want. Jesus called them together and he said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is the pagan way. This is the Gentile way. I want to lord it over. I want to be in control. I want to dominate. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And then he looks at his disciples, those, that's us, not so with you. And it includes our marriages. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so those who are mature in their faith, who hold this view that husband leads, wife submits, are mature in this way. That they don't lead as a pagan Gentile head, they lead as a Christ sacrificial, giving my life up for my wife kind of leader. And really that's what biblical authority is all about. Biblical authority is the ability to give life. If you don't have the ability to give life, you have no biblical authority. If a pastor or leader of any group, if you can't give life, you're not a kingdom authority. Uh, and so this is the one view that it means authority, but it should be lived out if you hold this view in a kingdom way, a sacrificial servanthood way. Uh, the other view means that kephale means covering or responsibility. And so they would kind of translate this verse this way. The husband is the covering over the wife, or the husband takes responsibility over the wife. There will be those in this category who think husband leads, wife submits. There's those in this category who believe in mutual submission. But they would say husband and wife have different needs, and they're wired differently from creation. That women tend to be people who want a covering, they would say. And women and, and men have the ability to do that. Uh, here is one person with this view who says it this way. Ephesians 5.23 does not focus on authority, 
but on the self-giving love of both Christ and the husband. Head in this context suggests responsibility for. The husband has a leadership role, though not in order to boss his wife or use his position as privilege. Just as Jesus redefined greatness as being a servant, Paul redefines being head as having responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture. A priority is placed on the husband, but contrary to ancient society, it is for the benefit of the wife. So this responsibility of covering was not for the benefit of the husband, because he owns the house and he can tell his wife what to do, like in that culture. It was that he was there a covering responsibility for the benefit of the wife. So that is view number two. And, uh, and there are people in the church who hold that view and would see their husband as a covering, as the one who has responsibility over it, and some people thrive uh, under that view. The third view is this, that kephale is basically the current reality of the day, but not God's ideal. So it's, it's the current reality, but not God's I- ideal. And they would kind of put the, t- the text this way. Uh, for the husband, husband is the head of the wife. That's what's going on in our culture. Go back to this day. You're thinking, the people who are reading this, they, they're thinking their culture. The husband of the head is the wife. That, that's just the way it is. Paul is saying, the husband is the head of the wife. That's the way it is in the culture. Just as Christ is the head of the church, that's the way it is as well. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the current reality in that culture was husband was the head of the wife. That's not God's ideal, but God is bringing in his ideal into that cur- that cultural reality. In other words, husbands, yeah, you're the head, okay, you're the head, but here's the kind of head I want you to be. I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. This argument would be the same as those, uh, we'll talk about this when we get to masters and slaves. Because we know that masters owning slaves is not kingdom. Well, I mean, we fight against that. But you know, Jesus never said that. Uh, Paul never actually said anything like, Masters don't have slaves, but we know the kingdom trajectory. We know what God's ideal is. God was speaking into this culture, trying to change the trajectory of masters and slaves so that one day they would be free. And they'd look at this text the same way. The current reality is husband is head, but that's not my ideal. My ideal is that husbands would love their wives and it would work towards mutual submission. And so that is the third view. The fourth view is that kephale means source. And I kind of lean more personally towards this view, but uh, I'm not sold on it because uh, there's a lot of great arguments for each of these views. Uh, Dr. Eddie Hyatt, who's a theologian, said this. When Paul says in Ephesians 5.23 that the husband is the kephale of the wife, the head of the wife, his point is not about authority and leadership. If he had wanted to establish an authoritarian structure for marriage, he could easily have done so by using words such as uh, archon, ruler, these are Greek words, uh, master or, or one uh, of honor and rank. Any of these would have uh, unambiguously communicated the idea of superior rank and authority. In other words, all throughout the, the New Testament, there are certain Greek words used for things like authority, boss, leader, those kind of things. It's never used in this passage. So they would argue if Paul wanted to make this clear that the husband was the CEO, the boss, he would have used different language. He would not have chosen this word kephale. Uh, Another scholar said this, the use of the term kephale in the New Testament texts about the relationship of men and women 
understood in their own context, does not support the traditionalist or complementarian view of male headship and female submission as described by those authors noted earlier. Rather, this data, in other words, they did a, a study of how this word was used in Greek culture, how it was used throughout the scripture, so rather, rather this data supports a new understanding in Christ by which men and women are viewed in mutually supportive submission-submissive relationships. And so those who agree with mutual submission, this is one of uh, the arguments they would lean to. And then you're like, I'm confused. What, is this, what does this have to do? Uh, Kephale means source. Here's how it works in context. They would say this. The husband, for the husband is the source. The word head or kephale is often used in Greek culture as source. It means source. Like, uh, you know, uh, the water comes from snow. It's the source, right? For the husband is the source of the wife. And the reason he says that is pointing back to Genesis. The wife came out of the side of Adam. The wife was, uh, the husband was the source of the wife. In other words, they're the same material, the same stuff. And the reason this was important is because in the world of the Ephesians, the view was that women were not the same stuff as men. That they were from an inferior source, they were from a different substance, that they were not the same stuff. And because they're not the same stuff, I can treat women as inferior, I can treat them as less. And Paul is arguing, actually, the wife is the same stuff as you, husband. You're actually the source of the wife. She came from you. So you love her as if she's your own body. That's kind of the general argument. So for the husband is the source of the wife. You're the same stuff. Just as Christ is the source of the church. The church came out of uh, Christ, his body, of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Again, talking about mutual submission. That's what wives do. This is what husbands do. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, now notice the context of this idea of head as source. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The wife has come from you. You love her as her own body. She's not of different substance. She's not from Mars and Venus and you're from some other place. They're saying you're for the same stuff. Again, that culture, they taught they were different. So the context actually fits well with this argument. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, for they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, pointing back to the Genesis story. The wife came out of the side of Adam to, as a symbol that they were equal. The wife didn't come from the back, meaning the husband's in charge. The wife didn't come from the front, meaning the wife is in charge. Came from the side, the same material. They're to walk together. As God said to both Adam and Eve, I want you to rule together. I want you to rule together. Become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so this view looks at this passage that headship means source, and it fits the context of the husband coming from the old, her own body. So maybe you'll be interested in studying more on those four views. But here's the point. No matter what view you take, we can all agree on this. No matter what view you take, we can all agree on this. If you actually just look at marriage and you start from another place, I mean, sometimes people start with marriage. Wives submit to husbands. That's where you start. Actually, we always need to start with Jesus. He is the center and when you begin to look at what Jesus talks about relationships, it starts us in a whole different place. 
And no matter what position you have, we all must agree that we have to mutually serve and mutually sacrifice in a marriage. Husbands and wife have to mutually serve and mutually sacrifice in a marriage. You remember John 13? I mean, here's Jesus as king of the universe. They go in for the Last Supper, and, you know, sometimes they would traditionally have a servant there to wash the dirt off their feet, and there was none. They walk in. Of course, none of the disciples volunteered because in our kind of fallen world, we all want to be great. We want to have others serve us. We want to rule like the Gentiles. We want to be in charge and everybody serve us. They're not going to wash feet. But Jesus, he takes off his outer garment. Jesus, being the king of the universe, takes a bowl of water and he washes the disciples' feet. This is a lesson on leadership. It's a lesson on serving. And then he says this, and he says this to husbands and wives. Because sometimes we're like, I'm not washing your feet. I'm not serving you. You've got to serve me. This, in a marriage context, listen to this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And if you know these things and live these things out in marriage, your marriage will just automatically be blessed. When you decide, I'm not going to fight over who's serving who, it's not going to be like, you got to serve me because I'm the head. It's like, we're going to mutually serve. Again, as we talked about last week, it's not a race to the top like the pagans. It's a race to shimmy down to who can get lower, who can be humble, who can, who can serve. And actually, that's the stronger position. And so mutually serve, mutually sacrifice. In fact, serving your spouse is actually one of the quickest ways to intimacy. I mean, sometimes people say, you know, we've lost intimacy, kind of lost romance in our marriage. One of the reasons is because often couples stop serving each other. Uh, you know what happens when you date someone? You serve them. You serve them in all these ways because you want them to be attracted to you and you want to bless them. And then when you get married, sometimes it's like, well, we've kind of done that and let's get on to other things. Jesus said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you serve, whatever you put your time, your energy into, your money into, that's where your heart is. And some people, their heart is no longer in their marriage because they spend all their time, energy, and money, they spend all their self serving other places. They serve their work, they serve their hobbies, they serve their friends, they serve the church, they serve all these things, and they, they don't serve their spouse. And they wonder, like, why isn't my heart in my marriage anymore? Uh, what happened to our romance? What, what happened? Well, where your treasure is, there your heart is. I mean, you're busy serving all other places and you're not sacrificing and serving your spouse. You will find your heart's just not there anymore. And you wonder, what? What happened? You need to start putting your treasure into your marriage. You put your treasure and you invest and you put energy, you just find your heart begins to grow and it will begin. Intimacy has a lot to do with where you put your time, energy, and money. 
And some people are just like, man, I love my hobbies because you have lots of time, energy, and money. Man, you're going to love your spouse the same way. Uh, here's some toxic thoughts we want to close with. Next week, I'm going to expand on this. And we're going to super, uh, just, just, it's going to be good application next week to, for everyday relationships as we talk about uh, serving each other. But here's some toxic thoughts that I think we all think at times, but are actually toxic to a marriage. And they're toxic to kingdom. Uh, how about this one? I worked all day, and when I get home, I should be served. I worked all day. I was hard work. I'm tired. I'm just going to go. I should be served because I worked all day. When you're at work, you're, you're a boss, okay? Maybe you're an employee, but do you want to get home? You're actually a husband or a wife. And if you expend all of your energy every day at work where you have nothing left to serve your spouse, there's an issue. Now, there are times when this might be so, where you've just worked a long, long time, and you just like, and you say, wife, I just need to sit back, or husband today, whatever. It's okay now, but this is, if this is a daily occurrence or a common occurrence, this is toxic to your relationship. If you have nothing left where you can serve your marriage, your treasure is not going into your marriage. And you will find the romance and intimacy begin to slide away because all of your treasure is going to your job or is going to your activities and not your marriage. Again, service to your spouse builds intimacy. Uh, How about this one? I wash the kids all day and clean the house. I don't need to serve anyone else. And again, this may happen from time to time. And if there's a good husband in the mix or a, a wife, if the other person is working, there may be times when this, this happens. But if this happens all the time, there's an issue. Uh, okay, you're in mom mode, you're in clean the house mode, but you're also a husband or a wife. And if all of your energy and service keeps going into the house and never, there's, you have nothing left to serve your spouse, the reality is the intimacy will begin to drain. And you need to sit down and maybe have a chat with your spouse and pray about how can we make things change. Can we mutually help each other on some things? Because there, there has to be energy to serve your spouse, to love your spouse as your own body, the text says. Or here's another toxic thought. I will, uh, if you serve me, I will serve you. Uh, this is similar to this one. I, I've been keeping score. I serve you more than you serve me. Uh, Scorekeeping in a marriage is just it's just always bad. Because if you're like, well, you've done more, I've done more than you, and you always think that you've done more because after you, you just keep score of the things you do. You don't, you don't see the things they always do. It, it's, it's not a good thing for marriage. These are toxic thoughts. The Bible says we mutually serve, we mutually sacrifice. I mean, Jesus didn't think this way. Again, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He is the example. It's his example of him dying on this cross. He, he didn't think this way. Well, I'll, I'll save you if you save me. You know? I'll come and die for you if you just shape, shape up and get things all together. No, he said, I died for you even while you were still an enemy. Here is a more kingdom thought. You, my brothers and sisters, or you, husbands and wives, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That means you don't keep score. That means you serve each other, even sometimes when when you're tired, because you're married. You've committed your lives to each other. This means you don't put other things ahead of your marriage. Here's a kingdom thought. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others or value your spouse above yourselves. 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of your spouse. In your relationships or in your marriages with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't just put this on the wife. He's saying, in your relationships with husbands and wife, have this attitude in your marriages. They're talking about Jesus who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now you start with these passages in Ephesians, wives submit to husband, you're going to end up somewhere over here. You got to start with Jesus. When you have a Jesus-centered theology, we start from Jesus, and everything Jesus says fights against this idea of trying to get to the top and trying to dominate and trying to be in control and have all the power. It's, it's a shimmy downward yes. to service and to sacrifice and to love towards each other. And next week, we're going to talk about the concept of his needs and her needs because we only have so much time and energy. We know that. We have busy lives. We have to work. We have families, we got all the stuff we got to do. We only have so much time to serve. You want to make sure that you're serving your spouse in a way that really matters to them. Sometimes you can spend a lot of energy serving your spouse and you think you're doing everything, but it's not really touching them because it's not really their love language or it's not really a need for them. And we'll get really uh, practical next week as we talk about serving each other when it comes to his needs and her needs. I invite the worship team forward and uh, let's stand together as we close and pray. So Father, we thank you uh, for our, our marriages. Uh, God, we thank you for all the future marriages. Uh, God, we thank you for um, those of us, uh, God, who are just feel like we need to help others who are married or whatever it might be. God, we thank you for marriages. We pray, pray blessing on marriages. God, we pray for uh, the power and the ability to serve and to sacrifice in beautiful ways that are meaningful. And God, most of all, we are thankful that you, Jesus, served us. That you didn't lord it over us, that you came down. And even when we were messy and doing things we shouldn't be and thinking thoughts we shouldn't, that you died on the cross for us. That you washed us clean of our shame and our guilt and you fully accepted us in Jesus. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you uphold us and support us. And God, we give you all the glory and all the honor. Flood us, God, with your love that we might flood our marriages with that love as well. In Jesus' name, amen.